A warm welcome to Home Retreats this Advent season. <clears throat> and I'd like to subtitle um, this contribution, if I may, um, The Give and the Take of Christmas. There are studies out there this winter revealing that soaring mortgage rates, fuel costs and the like have a lot of parents around the country looking to these next weeks ahead with a certain dread, some even telling their children it turns out Santa's not well this year and we'll have to postpone to next year to bring presents. Fearful of dashing the dreams of the little ones. Perhaps like me you have mixed feelings. When we sing, as we do at the end of Midnight Mass here at Ampleforth, hark the herald angels sing, the son of righteousness born that we no more may die. I'm led to wonder whether Christ really is born to fulfill my wildest dreams or whether in fact his birth fulfills instead the wildest dreams of the Father in heaven who dreams to be Jesus our Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God with us, God among us this Christmas in spite of the cost of living. Earlier this year, I was reading C.S. Lewis' tremendous little book, The Great Divorce, which I recommend. It's a great story about a bus trip to heaven. Most of the passengers go home unimpressed and not a little disconcerted. And Lewis confects the notion that hell, where it turns out the passengers actually started out, hell is the place where people can have whatever and everything they want, reminiscent perhaps of some people's Christmas experience. They can have whatever and everything they want, resulting in undoubtedly the loneliest and bleakest landscape imaginable. If hell is what I want, then heaven is perhaps what God wants. And so mixed into the beautiful and profound giving that we know about at Christmas, it seems Jesus has come also to take away. What does it mean that God is in some sense a thief? Well, if we're saying our prayers, we know all too well what it means. As soon as I let God into my life, really into my heart, into my mind, he begins to rob me of many things. For example, my feeling of superiority, my righteousness, and all those idols the false gods I'm keeping on my shelf for years or kept in my heart, the false gods of ambition, pride of life, all these the divine thief comes to take away. Rewind back to Israel's exodus and the long 40-year journey to the promised land. There's a memorable scene in the life of Moses. He's been wrestling with God and with the people after the episode, the famous episode of the golden calf. You remember the story, anxious at Moses' absence, the people persuaded Aaron to make a substitute God. They give him their ornaments and from them a golden calf is made. God informs Moses, who comes down, sees the calf and the people dancing around it. It's a shocking moment. And reading it, we can feel that shock still. He smashes the tablets on which God has inscribed the commandments, burns the calf, grinds it to dust, and castigates the people. 
He returns to the mountain to plead forgiveness, and God grants his request, and as a sign, bids Moses hew a second set of stone tablets. Moses descends. But something in Moses has changed. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord as a friend speaks with a friend. What's intriguing is that Moses didn't radiate when he brought down the first tablets, but only on the second occasion. In fact, the fate of the second tablets was altogether different from the first. The first were the work of God only. The second tablets were hewn by Moses himself, though the writing was done by God. It's a little detail that points to Moses changed as a result of his partnership with God, and his face shone. The shining light of the Christ child, the partnership of God with a human heart, points again to the intimate and profound meaning of all human ups and downs as guided by the hidden and effective hand of the Lord, intertwined with the weak and uncertain hand of mankind. Nowadays we're very security conscious and for good reason, but in the place of prayer, instead we're invited to take a risk, as it were, and leave the doors of our hearts and minds unlocked so that the thief may enter in to be ambushed, to be broken into, to be disarmed. Now, Advent is a time for letting God into my life as grace and as truth. As grace, I must let God be as extravagant as he wants to be in service of my humblest needs. As truth, I must let God into my life as a thief, as someone against whom I cannot finally defend myself. A few years ago, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, told this now quite famous story in his Christmas homily. It's worth sharing in the light of what I've been saying. A charming legend relates that at the birth of Jesus, the shepherds hurried to the stable with different gifts. Each brought what he had. Some brought the fruits of their labour, others some precious item. But as they were all presenting their gifts, there was one shepherd who had nothing to give. He was extremely poor. He had no gift to present. As the others were competing to offer their gifts, he stood apart, embarrassed, At a certain point, St. Joseph and Our Lady found it hard to receive all those gifts, especially Mary, who had to hold the baby. Seeing that shepherd with empty hands, she asked him to draw near, and she put the baby Jesus in his arms. That shepherd, in accepting him, became aware of having received what he did not deserve, of holding in his arms the greatest gift of all time. He looked at his hands, those hands that seemed to him always empty. They'd become the cradle of God. He felt himself loved, and overcoming his embarrassment, began to show Jesus to the others, for he couldn't keep for himself the gift of gifts. John Paul II spoke powerfully of the fact that we fix our gaze on the Lord's face that strengthens our commitment on behalf of humanity, enabling it to have an impact on history. In order to free history from all that disfigures it, to take away 
that all that corrupts it, to care for the deformed image of God on the faces of our brothers and sisters, faces disfigured by hunger, faces disillusioned by political promises, faces humiliated by seeing their culture despised, faces frightened by the constant and indiscriminate violence, the anguished faces of minors, the hurt and humiliated faces of women, the tired faces of migrants, the faces of the elderly who are without even the minimum conditions for a dignified life. Perhaps you remember also in the Gospels, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, those who have leprosy were cleansed, the dead raised, and the good news proclaimed. Who indeed is Jesus then, if not the answer to our dreams, to our prayers? Well, I wonder if we could go back and organise the events around Jesus' birth. We'd have him near the temple in Jerusalem, not a stable in a backwater. He'd be wrapped in something more glorious, perhaps, than swaddling clothes. And rather than a manger for animal feed, he would be housed in something more like a beautiful church with choirs singing, organs playing, the great and the good gathered. But instead it was shepherds who came first. And so that news of his birth might not put him in danger, his family left for Egypt of all places as refugees. And after that, for reasons not altogether apparent, considering he might just have appeared in the world a fully grown adult, he spent the next 30 years in total obscurity, learning to walk, talk, work, and gave then only three useful years, as it were, of his life to the mission. By the time he was my age, he'd been dead and risen again for nearly 10 years. What I'm saying is we need to look beyond what we see with our worldly eyes, beyond what we mean by the word glory, beyond that to what the angels mean when they sing glory to God, to see it with God's eyes. What is this glory born in such a poor, hidden and silent way? Did you ever read the book The Shack? There's a good film of it too. God says, but instead of scrapping the whole creation, we rolled up our sleeves and entered into the middle of the mess. That's what we have done in Jesus. A prophecy not as the fulfilment of our predictions or even particularly of our dreams, but instead what prophecy really is, revealing the intention of God's heart for us. Doesn't Jesus' birth at Christmas and his death teach us that God's mercy means to use what is imperfect at the service of a deeper knowledge and love. When I get things wrong, I hope there'll be people around me who prefer to show me mercy and forgiveness over shame and retribution. When I get into arguments or have different points of views, that there'll, people, there'll be people around me who choose peace over conflict. When I need to rely on people, I hope there'll be those who prefer truth over deceit, who prefer loyalty over betrayal, duty to others over self-interest. When I'm feeling afraid, I want there to be people who give me courage. When I'm lost, I want there to be people who know the way through difficult situations, who have 
wisdom enough to teach me. I want there to be people who, when I'm lonely, are not so engrossed in themselves that they actually prefer to give their time to me over the other things, probably better things they might otherwise be doing. I hope that when it comes to it, I don't just get from others what I deserve, or even what I ask for, but something better, something more that gives me hope and opens the door to life again. Here's a prayer to stay with for the rest of the day. Give me truth, Lord, that I may not be able to hide. Give me grace that I may not wish to hide. <laughs>